When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word story time, number 116. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins in Melbourne before heading to Brisbane. And hopefully this episode does not exist under a bleak hex, under a black curse, like the one that dogged story time 115, <laughs> the, uh, the most drawn out and painful process in all of our years of podcasting story time 115. But here we are for 116. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for us. Hello, Adam. And I'm feeling good. Uh, I like how you... <laughs> You um, refer to that. It, it's nice to be back in Melbourne for a few days before uh, heading off to Queensland, then returning to London last week. In fact, this will be the last story time that we record together until I go back and then we'll be returning to our um, Zoom model mm. before we uh, reconvene again in India. I, I was just saying that then that I'm feeling good, which Muse did a cover of that song. I was at the Killers last night at Rod Laver Arena. Oh, yeah. And the previous time I saw the Killers was in consecutive nights, mm. Muse and the Killers, both at Rod Laver during the 2007 federal mm-hmm. election campaign. I, I don't know how I managed to wrangle two days off, uh, <laughs> wangle rather, but I did. I think I, I, well, I know how I did it. I worked remotely, which was novel in 2007, out right. of Robert Ray's electorate office and uh, <laughs> over there on St Kilda Road. And then, uh, yes, saw the killers then. It was like a bit of a nostalgia gig for me last night because mm. I haven't really stayed in touch with the killers quite so much. But their first two albums meant a tremendous amount to me. And I was there with a couple of mates who I would have spent innumerable nights out with in mm. that stretch of time. Um, I've probably fallen off a little bit through the, would you call it the fetishization of, of Mr. Brightside? Like it kind of now, it, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. You know, in the England yeah. Christmas charts, they always make a point of saying it's in the charts for the, you know, the 20th year in a row, whatever it is now sure. and, and all the rest of it. And obviously after it became a big thing in footy culture after the 2017 grand final with Jack Rewalt and so on. Yep. So it means a lot to Richmond supporters especially. But I've, I've kind of drifted as, as that level of interest has gone up. And, but I, th- I think that's fair enough. But my, my, my friend Sean Whelan, the great poet who you've mm, seen perform mm. live before, he, he also moonlights as a party DJ and a wedding celebrant. Um, he's a, a man of many talents. And he's, his only rule is, I will play you any song you like except Mr. Brightside. I will <laughs> never play that song at any gig. And he's like, every night he plays, someone asks for it. And every night he's like, I'm sorry, but I have this rule and I cannot play it. I feel for a mate of mine, Case, who listens to our podcast from time to time, he, he is and was a massive Killers fan. But right at the very start, mm-hmm. I think he and I went to the, pretty sure he was with me when we went to the first ever Killers show in Melbourne at the Palace, rest in peace, in 2004, where the Killers had, you know, 12 or 13 songs. They played them, then they left the stage and that was that 40-minute gig, great night. But he loved them and, and loved Brightside so much that he got the entire guitar tabs tatted on his back, <laughs> probably in 2005, <laughs> I, I suppose it would have been, which yep. back then was, you know, perfectly fine. Now, might look like he's just kind of like a, a super fan. There was a bright side super fan in front of us actually who they played it third in the set. So they played two songs off Samstown. Then they played Bright Side and this mm. guy in front of me went fucking wild, like four minutes of all energy. Like I get it right. You know, mm. he's been waiting to see this song live. It means a lot to him. He's given it absolutely everything. 
and I felt a bit sorry for him because 90 minutes thereafter, he was just watching a band that he didn't really know very well. <laughs> and he probably wondered why we were. Uh, and that, again, that sounds terribly snobbish, indie, indie music snobbish, but it's the truth. Well, yeah, I mean, what do you do sometimes? You, can't, you, you go too early, you, you, you climax too early, and then it's just time to go to sleep, yeah. you know, um, and, and you, you can't necessarily enjoy the rest of the, of the show. It's got to be... It's only if it's part of a broader musical smorgasbord. I remember when I saw Bruce Springsteen play yep. and he was about an hour and a half into the show and then he said, we're going to play Born to Run and then he played Born to Run, the album, not the song. <laughs> like the entire album, then did about another half hour of stuff, then did three encores, you know. So when you're in the middle of like a four-hour musical slab, then it doesn't really matter what order things come up in. But in a conventional set, like if you've got a peak and you know it's your peak, I know it's 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 boring conventionality, but you kind of have to leave it to the end. Don't leave you? it to the encore or last song or, or the encore. I think of it like with a good albums, like a good cricket team. In fact, there's probably a nice column in this somewhere. But in an album, often we'll have eleven songs, and yep. you pace your, your. I suppose albums aren't as big a deal anymore either, are they? With, sure. With curation of playlists and algorithm and Spotify being mm-hmm. everywhere, it's less of a thing. But I used to always like you know the Strokes often would have eleven songs on an album, and I'd like to yep. think of them as like that is my number three, that is my number six. Yeah, my you know my fast bowler at the end. Yeah. take it or leave it on his on on, on his, his hiding head. your your vizier or viziagram or whatever, like your shitty number nine who doesn't bowl and doesn't yeah. do much, and you're like, well, we're just going to squeeze this one in. Yeah, yeah, the number eight that doesn't bowl. You yeah. know, there's always a filler track in, in in some of these albums. I do like those questions about like which albums have no skippable tracks on them. You know, that very rare beast, the <laughs> the, the, the album that is that you can actually play all the way through with no having filler. To apologize all for killer. A track. And a personal sort of hobby of mine is albums that have four absolute bangers back to back off the top mm. you know i think uh, i think the main jezebel's album is my uh, key example of one of those where right. the first four are just smash 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 yeah because usually even in the first four they might sort of throw in a dodgy one at number three or four just to try to get away with it or or the big track of the album at three something like yeah, that yeah artists that have one identifiable song kind of coming back to the killers like not to say they do by the way they've got you know, they've got many many hits mm. and I, you know I, my bias is certainly towards the first two albums which was fucking brilliant but like i think we joked about it Maybe it was it you or was it Dono? Maybe it was you that when I saw Dave Dobbin. Well, does this sound yeah, familiar? Start, start with Slice of Heaven, end with Slice of Heaven. Played it four. I think Dono <laughs> told me you once saw Dave Dobbin and he played it four times. Yeah. <laughs> Had to keep spotting it. You know. And what, what choice do why you have? Not? You know why they're there to see you. Yeah, if um, you're Chesney Hawks, you're playing, you're Chesney Hawks, you're playing, you're playing the one and only at least twice. Yeah, you, you would think so. Um, I'm sure when the Venger Boys, you know, when the Venger Bus is coming, it comes yeah, a couple of times yeah, in their shows. Yeah. Love to see the Venger Boys at some point. I've, I've discussed this with you, actually. I saw them play at the corner. I'm sure I've talked about yeah, this on the yeah, show yeah. before. But I think it was about a 42-minute set. And then at the end, they were like, which of the songs we've already played do you want us to play again for the encore? <laughs> I'm and not against like, it. Obviously, I want to hear boom, 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 boom again. Yeah. Please. Yeah. I'm not again. Harry did say to me, the bloke I went with Harry and Mocker, my two mates, he said, uh, I reckon they might play Brightside again in the encore because they played it so early in the set. But they didn't. They, they, mm. they went to a couple of Sam's Town classics and away yep. they went. Happy. A fair bit of when we were young, a bit of did they you answer the endless question, are we human or are we dancing? That, that did get asked. Yep. That was asked about halfway through the set to get people dancing again, mm-hmm. as you do. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I think the rewarding thing about going to a gig with a band that's got a long, you know, a, a long history is that if they play an album track of something early which you adored, yeah, uh, it means a lot. So when, for reasons unknown, was played last night, the three of us looked at it, we basically were nearly crying. Like, fuck me, this means a lot to us. This song, but yeah. no one really, not no one, but there was a very limited number of people who gave a fuck about an album track from two thousand and six. But fuck, it meant a lot to us. Um, so that, that's I went and saw Arcade Fire a few years ago with, mm-hmm. with Bretto in in England, and um, 
And, uh, you know, I was a huge Arcade Fire fan. I couldn't have been a bigger Arcade Fire fan for a big part of my life. And I'd seen them live, I don't know, 15 times, something like that. I've seen them live a lot. And I'd never heard them play Crown of Love in a live show. And I heard the start of it being played. You know, again, album track doesn't normally get a run or funeral. And I just like instantaneously burst into tears. I'm like, this is the only time this is ever going to happen in my life. May as well enjoy the next three and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember uh, driving around Iceland with Cam the cameraman, Cam Fink, um, oh. and we stopped on the side of a mountain to watch a, a sunset and we were blasting the killers from the car stereo. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly we listened to Sigaros because it just made sense. Once you got yeah. to Iceland, you were like, well, this is – it just felt right. It was atmospherically it was so do. correct. <laughs> You're like – I see why they make this music now as you <laughs> drive through some like fog-laden fjord through a bunch of black volcanic outcrops on your way up to that giant cliff where they filmed that, remember that Sigaros video clip with all the kids running up the hill and then like floating off into the air off the top of the cliff? No, the main thing I remember about Sigaros, I'm thinking of sure Sigaros when they released the album, but it was first played in Melbourne. Am I right in saying this, Sigaros, around the tape deck? probably where we are now in Carlton around this area and people just huddled around a tape deck to hear it played out for the first time, <laughs> which felt quite... I hope so. I might be getting that wrong. I think it was Cigarros. Anyway. Mm-hmm. The old tape decks. Yeah, the uh, the DDP. You ever familiar with that? The Decentralised Dance Party. I was thinking they... about Diamond Dallas Page and his diamond cutter, <laughs> WCW champion. No, so friends of mine used to run this gig where they would um, have a, a little radio transmitter and then get about 100 people with battery-powered boomboxes. Right. And... So because there's a limit on the size of a PA you can have, you can have as many small PAs as you want. So you just get 100 boomboxes all playing the same song from this radio transmitter <laughs> ah. and it becomes a very loud party yeah, but yeah. also a legal party and also a mobile party so you can just walk it through the streets. I see, to I wherever see. you want to end up. Just on that, I think they'd like, remember when, when albums were released and the significance of the day of the release of the mm-hmm. album and going and buying the physical, it sounds like I'm a fucking boomer here but it's not that far away, it's only like 15 years ago, when you'd go to the shop, purchase the album and listen mm-hmm. to it the first time, there was that kind of collective experience. Yep. Now because that is less of a thing with albums being less important i suppose in the zeitgeist and certainly you're not physically buying music unless you're a collector of vinyl like no one buys cds for example if you listen to music in your car it's plugging your phone in listening to spotify or itunes or or whatever it is but i remember sandtown by the killers was released on grand final day 2006 it was the west coast eagles grand final so we all went to jb hi-fi in the morning Mm -hmm. bought the album played it out all morning around Mm -hmm. my flat in East Melbourne, different flat to the one you know, um, the one that was on the back of the MCG, like to fire up for that day. Like lots of mornings and days like that yep. stand out where, you know, being at JB at nine o'clock in the morning mm. as the doors open to get the CD, to hear it first. Yep. Even when Triple J used to go, right, we're going to have the album first before it's out in shops tomorrow. We're going to play it back to back. The Strokes, mm. their second album, Room on Fire. I remember it was midday on a Friday afternoon. I was working at the Commonwealth Bank, first year of uni, and I went into my car and listened to the, you know, 33 minutes or whatever it was <laughs> of, of the album being played. Francis Leach talks about, well, it's spoken of him when he was at Triple J years before that. He played the entirety of which it was the Radiohead, the Bends, right. played the whole thing because he the significance of it upon arrival in Australia. <laughs> I think we miss a bit with music on that now. Like there's definitely not, unless I'm, unless I'm not, in the right conversations and maybe this reflects my age but I don't think we have that communal thing about all obsessing over something as it happens in quite the same way that when it was more tactile there's a little bit of it online where it might be you know like the the most recent Beyonce album, that kind of thing, became a thing. Once it became available, then it was, you know, there were a bunch of people all gathering electronically to, to talk about it. Yeah, I but, suppose that's right. You know, the Arctic Monkeys album that divided opinion recently, like people did listen to it on day one, but mm. yeah, perhaps not quite so much as they used to. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going on a bit. 
Yeah, well, we should probably get on with the show. I bet that uh, Andrew Embley and Daniel Chick had a, had a rock out to Sam's oh, mate, they're still. I think um, Andrew Embley's still out, isn't he? <laughs> I think that we, we had a big night, naturally, that night. And, um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, Andrew Embley's uh, still charging from the 2006 grand final night, <laughs> probably with Daniel Chick. Coming down, down the stairs at Revs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> out blinking into the mid-afternoon. Right. We should talk about some cricket. On with the show. Do we uh, have to? A, a little, a yes, little bit do. of correspondence uh, first. Here is a note from Jeffrey Gabriel to say that a few weeks ago, Adam, you beautifully told the story of Johnny Martin, and we solved it based on the clue, and we couldn't figure out how it related to the number, and that's because I stuffed up the number. Well, I attached the clue to the wrong person's number, so I said it was Alex Valianovsky's clue, but it ah. wasn't. It was Jeffrey Gabriel's clue. Which means it should have been attached to the number $8.97. Okay. And eight ninety seven is Johnny Martin's best bowling in first-class cricket. Great. In 1963 when he ran through the Vicks at the SCG. So Jeffrey just wrote in to say, you got the answer right, you just got the person wrong. <laughs> so here <laughs> we I'm are. I'm surprised we don't do that more often, really. Yeah, as, as am I. A manual data entry into an Excel spreadsheet. It's not exactly a high-tech operation. So there are mistakes, but they're yeah, not as frequent as they might be. And just on that on that admin, that admin thing, like we are a little bit behind on all that at the moment, as yep. you'd probably expect. I know you've done a power of work in the last two days, Jeff, but generally speaking, we, we haven't been really good on this while I've been in Australia well, since the World Cup. I pledge to get right on top of this upon arriving back in the UK. I'm going to have a breather from all my other jobs and just focus on, on podcast stuff. So if you've left me a, a DM or, or a message on Discord, it's not you, it's me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a note from Cameron Allen as well. We were talking about Sarah Berman, our listener, and mm. her meteoric rise through the scoring ranks. It's amazing, isn't and it? And saying that maybe we'll have an international scorer among our audience soon. Well, Cameron Allen wrote in to say, you've already got one because he's scored a few ODIs uh, at Monica Oval over the years. He self-deprecatingly says it's only because there are no other scorers in Canberra and so occasionally they have to to turn to him, but uh, we've got a salute where salutations are due to Cam Allen and his scoring work at Monica Oval. Yeah, good. If we have a couple of international scorers, the international umpire in, in training, mm-hmm. Brian Arcane, um, who knows, maybe, as we said before, yeah. maybe I'll be playing cricket for Portugal in a couple of years once I take up that residency option that we found, the nomad resident, and the, can uh, qualify for them. The Arcane Fire. Can, yeah, we, can, can we get his fan club to be <laughs> to be called that? So I think we've got to get into the show. Uh, okay. We're going to do this via the medium of a game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge is a reverse quiz. Uh, it is people out there listening to the show trying to quiz us. They send in contributions to help us fund the show and the amount of money they send in is not a normal amount. It's a specific amount that relates to cricket in some way and we have to figure out what it is. Now, this one from James Ralston did pop up a few weeks ago, but we had no idea. We threw it to the <laughs> audience. We thought about it and we didn't really spend a lot of time on it. So I'm going to treat it as a new number. Okay. It is $16.10 from James Ralston. Lovely numbers, much appreciated. And the clue, with a follow-up clue was this, a world record many wouldn't know about occurred in 2015. Both teams contributed and then as we were looking and getting nowhere, he came back and helped us out a bit more and said, it's a total of test match runs, but with a couple of key caveats. Find the total and you should be able to work out the caveats. And we have all been over this. Barat's been over this. I've been over this. You've been over this. And we know that 1,610 is an aggregate that was made in the England-New Zealand game at Lords in 2015. But what the hell is the record? One of the great test matches. Yeah, when the first, I had a look at the first clue before the additional information. So that makes sense where we're at now with, with the number. I think Henry Blofeld, who covered like, I think he was up in the 
400s before he retired, said it's the best test match he'd ever he'd ever cut. Mm. Which in a way, you know, you look at the margin, 122 runs, I think Thereabout, it was. Yeah. But it was the rhythm of that test and there were there was a lot going on there at Lords that week. I was following it from the Caribbean. In fact, I might have been on the way to the Caribbean yeah. for that 2015 Australia Windy Series and um, was, uh, you know, following furiously on those last couple of days when anything could have happened when New well, Zealand... It was, it was New England, right, before, was, before yeah. the current New England. It was after the 2015 World yeah. Cup debacle and New Zealand were exciting and interesting and just going hell for leather and England decided to do the same for a little while. Yeah, Paul Farbrace. He didn't want to change the world. He was looking for a New England briefly, albeit before Trevor Bayless got the job around the same time. It's but- just above New York State. you just got to keep going north. <laughs> Easy to find. He's just looking for another girl. Uh, now, the um, where are we? We're not talking about Billy Bragg, nor are we talking about the number of extras or half centuries or runs in boundaries. We kind of systematically went and ruled all these yep. bits and bobs out along the way. Now, just I be- thought we had it on the 50s, but Barat and I were chatting through this and yeah. we were like, there are 16 half centuries in yes. this game. It's got to be close. We're like, it's got to be close and, and there's there's a 17 floating around oh, somewhere. So there. it was, it was, yeah, it was painfully close, but not quite. It. Yeah, I, I end up painfully close with my answer here, but at least I think I'm... I'm I think I've got to be close. Yeah, and it is the record aggregate at Lords, but that's, it is. that's not a world record. No, it's not, and I it's mean. the second highest aggregate, I think, in the UK. So I went to the list. So it's the 22nd highest aggregate of all time. Mm-hmm. I looked through the other 21. I tried to find meaning in those numbers, yep. and I kind of got somewhere. I originally thought, well, might it be that this was the only match without declarations? There's a couple with declarations okay. above in the list. Cause, you know, to get an aggregate score that high, you probably have – batted for a long time and, you know, it's competitive because both sides are bulking up the runs. That that doesn't happen. Then I thought possibly May. Like it's an unusual month to have a high-scoring test match because there's not that much test cricket played outside of the UK in Mm. May. And why would it be a month for high scoring when it tends to be more bowlers than batters? But that's not right either. There were two more tests in May where it's higher than 16, 10, all up. Then I thought maybe the highest aggregate score in England where 40 wickets were taken. Um, there were four more than that. So, you know, mm. all, all these bits and pieces. Then I stumbled upon this and thought this was unusual. New Zealand elected to field first in a match where it's runs galore. I thought there wouldn't be many test matches where there have been bulk runs where mm. the captain at the toss elected to bowl first. And this was painful. I went through every scorecard of the 21. And for whatever reason, the cards I was clicking, I wasn't clicking them in order. They were just like I had them up in a browser, one after another. And I mean... This would have been the nineteenth card I clicked, where I found the second <laughs> time or the other time where the captain had won first and fielded first with a score above mm. sixteen ten. That was in nineteen sixty nine at Sydney, where the Windies were set seven hundred and thirty five from a bowled out for three fifty two in the final innings. This came up on commentary last week because Australia beat the Windies by was it four hundred and forty twenty odd whatever yeah. it was. That became the highest win yeah, on runs, overtaking the nineteen sixty nine result where Bill Laurie copped pelters for setting seven thirty five. Like it was, well, why are you doing this for? What's the point in batting for so long? So that well, I didn't realize Shane Warne was on commentary in nineteen sixty nine. No, he wasn't. Yeah. He would have been like, you get an extra day of golf. You know what you're doing, boys. But it was the highest in England, where you know a team bowled first and got a result. So there's that caveat, I suppose, if we want to be strictly relevant to James Ralston's yep. clue. That's not a world record. Just to go back over a few bits of the 2015 Test match. England won by 124 runs late on the final day. England were four for 30 on the first morning. So maybe there's something in that actually. Four for 30 is it possibly the worst start 
to a test in, for a side. In one of those aggregate. In one of those, you know, matches. and then that's pretty oh. tangential, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, the scores in that test were 389, 523, 478. With could Stokes could making, it be the most runs made by the last 36 batters? Yeah. You know, yeah, something so, like that. Now I think about it, that, that could be it, but there's no way he could realistically expect us to see that. And it feels like this is more obvious than we're making it. Yeah. So that was set 345. And New Zealand were 12 for three in that chase. So they were fucked, but they dragged it into the final session. Moeen takes a great catch mm. at third man off Ben Stokes, I'm pretty sure, to get rid of, I want to say, Trent Bolt Trent uppercutting. Bolt sounds right to yeah, me. Trent Bolt memory. uppercutting down to third yep. man and Moeen taking a screamer. That was the decisive moment. So and James... Took um, one earlier, I think, took a court and bold earlier. I think Moeen That, that rings a bell moments. as well. I know Moeen played a role in that final day mm. and Stokes did throughout the five days. And yeah, James, I reckon we're, we're zeroing in on it. We're obviously not quite there, but I can't wait to find out what it is when yeah. you tell us and we'll do that in the confirmations, you know, sooner rather than later. Yep, James, time to put us out of our misery. <laughs> three, three of us have all had a good solid crack at this yeah. and got absolutely, well, we've got somewhere, but we haven't got quite there. Right, Thomas Melia, $1.75 Hello, Tom. with a clue. Uh, the clue is this. Based on recent discussions about the gentleman and streets of Philadelphia. It relates to a person and isn't an individual innings. The Philadelphia reference is more to those games having first-class status. To get you there, I'd like to direct you to a wicketkeeper who managed five games in 24 years. He debuted against Middlesex in 1947. Uh, Thomas, you know you know our areas, you know <laughs> our interests. Uh, let us tell you about Derek Harold Robbins, a fella born during World War One in Bexley Heath, one of those very good English kind of names. Mm. Bexley Heath. I'll meet you down at Bexley Heath. <laughs> yes, jam before cream or cream before jam. So I don't actually know what Derek Harold Robbins is doing up until his 30s, you know, I assume he's, he's working, he has a professional life. But just before his 32nd birthday, he makes a first-class debut okay. for Warwickshire against Middlesex. He's a wicketkeeper, short-term replacement, you know, just, just coming in to help out with the gloves. From where, I don't know, because he's not actually playing any seconds cricket before this point right. and he's 32 years old. He makes 29 not out in the first innings, goes okay, gets run out for 10 in the second innings. Didn't want it enough. So 39 without being dismissed by a bowler, that's not bad for a debut. He doesn't get to take a dismissal because they get absolutely flogged. Uh, Middlesex declare on 452, not many wickets fall. Those that do are mostly bold or LBW, and so he doesn't actually get to take any catches. And they lose by an innings, so he only gets to keep wicket once. Right. He gets another gig a month later against Cambridge. They get bowled out for 77. So he does take a few catches in that game, but it's, it's not a, he doesn't enjoy a great deal of success as a Warwickshire player. And that's it. That's his first-class career. He's only helping out um, here and there. He ends up after this in the Warwickshire seconds playing minor counties cricket. So even though he's advancing in years uh, by this point, he doesn't seem to mind playing as an older player, as you will see as we move on. (laughs) But he's got this successful construction company. He builds that up. He becomes very wealthy. He takes over Coventry City. Uh, He's the Mm. chairman of Coventry, makes it a very successful football club is involved in all kinds of sports festivals and after another 20 years or so he gets control of the Eastbourne Festival which I assume is you know like Cheltenham was one of these one of these cricket festivals that go on in England and some of the touring sides would use Eastbourne as their first warm-up you know their very casual park cricket kind of warm-up so um, what happens in 1969 Derek Harold Robbins 
picks himself to captain a team against the West Indies <laughs> because they're uh, they're touring. So he's up, he's playing against Roy Fredericks, Garfield Sobers, Van Benholder, Charlie Davis, who's got one of the best test averages of all time, Basil Butcher. Now, bear in mind at this point, Derek Robbins is about to turn 55. He's captaining a team involving Colin Milburn, Mike Dines, Mushtaq Muhammad, MJK Smith. <laughs> he's not wicket-keeping. He's batting 11. He makes 13 not out in an 18-run partnership in the second innings for the last wicket to save the game Bump as a him. draw. Bump him. Absolutely. I mean, tell me that is not an absolute fix, right? Yeah. You know, the West Indies have come to a <laughs> carnival game being run by this nice bloke and he's at 11 and so I'm sure they bowl him some fucking half-trackers. Get two, him fucking sniffing it. Two feet outside off stump and he doesn't have to play and I'm sure it's all very convivial. <laughs> and what's, what's the result of all this? First-class runs added to his record. That is recorded as a first-class cricket match for old mate aged 54 and 99.5 percent uh, you know four weeks before his 55th birthday he's added 13 first class runs to his record he plays again a month later this is just a few days before his birthday right against oxford university and again it's the dh robbins 11 and again it has fucking first class cricket status <laughs> this is an absolute sham an absolute shambles couple of years later 1971 says that was fun let's do it again he's just turned 57 at this point blimey he's playing in a team he's captaining a team with tony Gregg, with chris old and who's he playing against adam sunil gavaska gundapa vishwanath vinu mankad <laughs> erapali prasana bishan Beatty are in the opposition for 57 year old Derek robbins uh, having another go around again he's batting at 11 he doesn't actually get a hit in this particular game but he does add a fifth first-class game to his record. Wow. I think, I think the standing is that he's the oldest player since World War II to play a first-class match in England. I think that may still stand because I we'll doubt We'll see that. how Dazzler Stevens goes in 13 yeah. years' time. <laughs> he adds that to his record. From 1972 on, he says, let's change things up a bit. I'm going to start sending touring teams to apartheid South Africa. You know, real pioneer. And mm. it'd be the first, going to be the first businessman to try to get around the apartheid boycott blockade and send commercial touring teams to South Africa to make Just cash. Just what I was about to say, I admired his... Um, yeah. I admired how industrious he was in taking over Coventry City. I've had, you know, having spent the last, well, 15 months of my life involved in a lot of this kind of business. So I'm like, well, that's quite a good effort. But yes, not such a big fan of the apartheid business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I think, uh, well, from a certain perspective, it can tell you with things like giving yourself first-class games at the age of 57. True. World Series cricket, not first-class status. <laughs> D.H. fucking Robbins 11 playing glorified park cricket, like pat on the back, circle jerk stuff at some village green with probably 20-yard boundaries against a touring West Indies team bowling underarm lobs to be nice. Fine, that's got first-class status. What an absolute fraud. Derek Robbins, five matches, 70 runs in 24 years at a glorious average of 17.5. The number from Thomas Melia was 175. Yeah, we went through a couple of years ago, you know, players above the age of 50 playing first-class cricket. Mm. Ray Illingworth, when he returns to Yorkshire late in his career to captain his 
51, 52. I think mm-hmm. Brian Close Brian played Close. games in his 50s in the DB, Close DB 11 Close in the mid-80s. 11, yeah. He was actually batting in the top six in those games, I should say. Like, that wasn't as egregious and because we were looking last year in the context of Sawanji Madniaka, who, who doesn't look like he's going to add to his first-class tally, by the way. I haven't communicated with him, but he's come to an abrupt halt in 20, early 2020. So the pandemic might have scuppered him there. Mm. Um, but we did get his um, quick info profile amended so that it had his real age not... We added two years to his age through that, that process. <laughs> that might be why he hasn't got a game. Yeah, but who might be 50? Well, yeah, Steve-O. I'm not sure if he's been signed by anyone. I, I sense that Steve-O will end up like a novelty signing, and I don't yep. think that's the right way to interpret it, but like, he did start his career at Leicester. Maybe he gets back to Leicester, sells a few shirts, plays a few T20s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, couldn't rule it out. I mean, you know, why not? There've got to be a couple of teams floating around that could use Well, he'd be a useful asset to some clubs, mm. I'm sure, in the middle of the year and, you know, when they're depleted through the 100 and so on. Yeah. Well, that is the 175 for Very Thomas good. Melia. Uh, Tim Minchin, not that Tim Minchin, <laughs> the other Tim Minchin, has sent through $6.21 and says the date of my pledge is relevant. Now, this one should have come up weeks ago, but um, okay. got lost at the back of the washing machine somehow and it's just coming around now. Sorry, Tim. Okay. So uh, that date was December 29. Yeah, and as a result, I feel like it has to relate to the three-day test match at Melbourne mm-hmm. last year. Initially, I'm thinking, well, maybe England lost six for 21 on that third morning. And yep. they nearly did. You know, they lost six for 22. Then I thought mm. for about five minutes, ah, oh, look, this must be a clerical error. Surely that's what he's referring to. Like, you know, and we've wildly speculated before when our patrons might have got the numbers wrong by one. Usually, at, usually out of desperation. Usually, usually we're projecting. Because we're like, please, yeah. we, we're just trying to fit our foot into <laughs> a shoe that is one size too small. But Stokes was out. It was 46 for five. Then they were all out for, for 68. So that was a collapse of six for 22. So that was out by a single run. Um, yes, yeah, so I won't make that slanderous suggestion here. However, I will link to an error in a bit because okay. I reckon I know what this is and I reckon there's been an error made by the media. The media, the capital media. T, capital M. It could even be an error that I've made on radio. It's possible. Okay. Let's keep moving through. So it's got to be Scotty Boland, right? Like, you know, there's a six in it. It's December 29. It's December 2019. Uh, sorry, December 29, rather, last yeah. year. It's all, it, it's somewhere here. It's a Scott Boland answer. How yeah. could it not be? Yeah, the, in desperation, okay. I was like, six for 21. What if you add his six for seven to yeah. some of the other runs from the previous <laughs> innings? <laughs> it, it didn't work. So he bowled four overs in that second innings. Yep. So 24 deliveries, mm-hmm. six wickets. So that doesn't quite work. Then I went and looked through it and thought, ah, oh, shit, it's a, you know, he bowls two balls at the front of the spell that are wicketless. Mm. And there are two balls after taking his sixth wicket mm. to end the spell. So effectively, you know, he, he's, six he's in 20 it's, balls. It's six in 20 balls. However, I Googled this. Everywhere it's reported at mm. six wickets in 21 balls. Is it? You know how these things can happen. We've both been there. Sure. Someone says a stat, radio, television. Yep. It's, I'm, I'm guilty of this all the time where I say something that ends up being like, wrong by a millimetre. But once you've said it, once it's out in the ether, mm. people don't necessarily think to go back and check it. Six for 21, six wickets in 21 balls rather, features everywhere in right. the coverage of Scott Boland six for seven last year. So I suspect, because this was repeated time and time again, that Tim, without necessarily going through the quick, quick info ball by ball, and why would he, mm-hmm. has seen fit on that day to go six twenty-one, six wickets in 21 balls. There that was no like no ball in there or something like that. Not that, that I can see. I mean, sure, right. You're right. 
it's possible that's that's the that's the glitch here. But in terms yeah. of legal deliveries, there were twenty legal deliveries yep. and six weeks. It could be that a no ball was added, but I, you know I don't remember pulling up that stat on radio. I don't expect I did because I, I know I was on air mm. for wickets five and six, so it's improbable I would have read that out. But it doesn't take much to see that how that may have happened. Yeah, it, these things happen as I say all the time. No ill will. It's just you know you're working quickly and. And it, it's very easy for a number to get read out that isn't exactly right and it ends up being taken as law because the journos in the press box... Yeah, someone hear hears it, it, they write it down, they, write it and they haven't gone back in. to check it. Precisely. Um, someone so, else picks it up from someone else's copy. You go, what was that number again? It was, six, it was 21 balls. 21 balls, yeah, done. cool, thanks. Great fact. Away you Off go. You so six for seven, he was six for five at one point. Yeah, I, I forgot that he had two balls at gym. Uh, he could have taken seven for five if he knocks Jimmy over. Jimmy hits a two and finishes with six for seven and the test ends up the other end with Cameron yep. Green taking the final wicket. What a contrast, by the way. So that's his test debut, best debut figures at the MCG. He registered the worst one-day figures for an Australian one-day player on debut back in 2016 at the Gabba, which aren't that bad really, but none for 74 from 10 where Coley... I think Rowett maybe as well. Both made hundreds oh, that, up at the that series. That series. Yeah, the one where they were just yeah. – it was, it was like bowling on glass and yeah. everybody was racking up hundreds. Well, they remain the worst figures for an Aussie debutant in 50 huh. over cricket, would you believe, or an Aussie man at least. I don't know right. if a woman might have gone for more. So the um, 438 came was not Mick Lewis's first. No, not, not his first radio. But, yes, um, the hunt for Boland at least uh, for Father Marriott's 8.78 average. I think he's still on, you know. I mean, he, his average is 10 now. If he took a few wickets in a hurry and the way he's going at the moment, if, I don't know if you've seen the track, Nasha McGlashan posted a photo. You've got to be careful about judging a pitch two days out. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, it's indistinguishable from any other yeah. pitch on the square. If they keep loads of grass on it and they pick Boland, I, I still want to believe that he'll get his average beneath Father Marriott's again. The Green Mamba. We've uh, we've been seduced by the Green Mamba so many times. Uh, every time we've gone to New Zealand, we're like, oh, it's looking green. And it plays like an absolute runway, and the Gabba is almost always the same. Uh, yeah, I, I think if you're a if you're an Australian curator, you wouldn't want to give the South Africans more help because you know that your home bowlers can do more with less. I think they should play anyway. Yeah, I think like they've got so much scope at the moment, right? They could easily go, oh, Nice at Brisbane, good as gold. Boland at the MCG, fine. Maybe Hazelwood plays at Sydney. This is the great thing about this Australian group at the moment. There's really no bad option. They're all good in different mm-hmm. ways. And Boland, I think I heard Sam Perry say on the Great Cricketer this week, good episode, by the way, that Boland's average at the Gabba is better than Nisa's. Yeah. So there might be counterintuitively a way uh-huh. of justifying that. But yeah, I reckon Nisa at home is a nice shout after being in the squad so often at the Gabba and not playing. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. Right, Joel Burton with £5.5550. This is another one that we looked at very briefly and got nowhere with. The original clue could also have been 519 or 530 for a very brave individual. Later, Joel came back and said it is bowling figures. So he's talking about 5 for 50, 5 for 19, 5 for 30. Okay. So the best I can figure with this is that this is someone who ended up with 5 for 50 but had a chance missed in some way at 30 and at 19. As in they yes. would have had 5 for 19. When I looked at it, have... I was thinking, is it a bowler who's taken 5 for 19, 5 for 30 and 5 for 50, but they're all significant. But I think your, your way of sleuthing it. Is going to yeah. get you a better place. This, this is this is the only way that I can try to decipher this clue. It's the only way that makes sense to me. Is that at some point they were four for nineteen, had a chance missed. Four for thirty, had a chance missed. Ended up with five for fifty. Got it. Does it take into account butterfly effect? 
I don't know. <laughs> we'll come back to this. So five for 50, never been taken in women's test matches. Jess Jonathan in women's ODIs, it's not going to be that. Mount Monganui in 2016 because she had three for 44, then four for 44 and then five for 44 before getting hit for a six off the last ball of the game, bowling the last over against New Zealand, obviously. No one else plays at Mount Monganui. In test matches for the men, Damika Prasad in Sri Lanka 2014. I thought this could be it for a minute because that was the win at Leeds when Sri Lanka did have to be brave when they played so well in that two-match series against England and, and beat them 1-0. Got James Anderson out in the the dying moments of that match. And Damika Prasad was on four for 30 at one point. Right. But there was no missed chance at that stage. So it couldn't have been five for 30. You could say that Nathan Lyon was brave uh, at the MCG in 2013 because his fourth innings record was poor, his fifth day record was poor. Did they even get to the fifth day? Was it the fourth day? The fourth day, yeah. yeah. Well, I think they, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I can't remember anymore, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it was day four because it was a pretty low score. Australia didn't make much. England made about 200 in the first innings. Anyway, he, he goes, Lyon goes two for 49, three for 49, four for 49. Five for 50. So oh, that's, that's right. It was his 100th wicket, wasn't it? It was Lyon's 100th wicket in Test cricket. Was it? Yeah. Huh. That, that was the celebration that day. Okay. So yeah. he's added 350 since then. Mm. Peter Siddle doing the heavy lifting at the start of the Trent Bridge Test in 2013. One of the great Test matches uh, gets Matt Pryor out to get to five for 50, but he's got Ian Bell just before that. So it was four for 49, mm. three for 49 to four for 49 to five for 50. And then I, I looked at Lasseth Malinga and I thought this this has some bravery because this is Murali's last innings and Malinga takes five for 50. <laughs> and Murali needs three wickets to get to 800. You remember that he, oh, um, yeah. before his last test, he, he says, this is my last one and he's on 792. He gets five in the first dig. He needs three more in the second to get to 800. And if you are running in at the other end from Murali and knocking him over, <laughs> I think that takes some courage on its own. I wonder what that would have done if he finished on 798. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he was just at peace. He he would have he would have taken the number. It would have been like a 99.94 situation. Yeah, it could have been like a yeah, Gordon Coventry 1299 type thing. Yeah, imperfect, but somehow more memorable for that perhaps. But the 800 was pretty bloody memorable getting the last wicket of the game. Also, they're bowling in this innings after enforcing the follow-on, which takes a bit of bravery in the modern era mm. um, after, you know, the, the, the workloads and the lack of a rest day and stuff. And this Malinga spell is crazy, or a couple of spells. He, he's reversing the shit out of it and he's bowling thunderbolts. This is probably peak Malinga yeah, in test yeah. cricket. Clean bowls Tendulkar with a reverse swinging Yorker, no big deal. Does the same to MS Dhoni, no big deal. Gets Raul Dravid caught at leg slip, I think it was. Gets Gautam Gambia. And he does take an amazing return catch off shitlist entrant Verenda Sewag, but he's overstepped uh. to no ball. So this is where butterfly effect comes into it, though, because this happens earlier in the innings. So it's not as though, I mean, obviously, if he gets the Sewag wicket, then he doesn't necessarily get the other wickets that follow it. But if we ignore butterfly effect, if we say that causation, you know, the passage of time is, is not actually linear it still doesn't quite get us there because if you count the Sawag wicket, he would have had five for 34, not five for 30. So, again, I'm getting yes. bloody close here, but I haven't quite got it. So when Dhoni gets out, it was four for 34, and if you throw in the Sawag non-wicket, it would have been five for 34. So it doesn't fit. I, I haven't been through every test match in history with these figures, but I have been through a lot of them, Joel. 
And um, I, I like to think I'm somewhere in the ballpark, but I haven't hit we're, it out of the We're going to need another yet. push, aren't we, on that one? I think this is a white flag situation. I think, Joel, you need to put me out of my misery. And I should also say, Jeff, isn't it going to be sad when we're running world cricket one day or at least people adjacent to us and the World Eleven Test Match of 2005 gets stripped of test status? It mm. never should have been a test match in the first place. And Marulli goes back to 790-something wickets. Stuart McGill won't be happy either. On two two oh eight, Stuart McGill. I think McGill's got a few more than that. McGill still stays above. I think McGill ended up in the two forties, didn't he? Oh, two two forty four, yeah. Two forty four. So he, he'll be fine. The only player who is there were centuries in that test to yeah, maybe Gilchrist. Hayden Hayden, Hayden, Hayden stands out. So Hayden so, oh, well, drop back below Brad. Hayden goes back to twenty nine. Oh, well, such is life. Yeah. And. Yeah, Morley. Oh, it's just going to have to be at some point. Just, uh, just a real <laughs> shame. He's just going to have to come out of retirement and play another test match. He'd probably go okay. I expect he would. Right. Simon Butcher in the Great British Sterling 406. Free swing, open field, 406. What do you make of it? Well, I saw it and thought maybe there's been a 406 in first-class cricket. To my dismay, there is not one. There is the Hick 405 not mm. out, the Sam East 410 not out. I love that the Sam Northeast 410 is going to be a thing forever now. Like whenever yeah. we see the number in any form of cricket, we're going to yep. refer to um, Sam Northeast. But DC, I think for the first time in a while, you can crank up the music. Haven't done one of these for a little bit, Jeff, but it feels absolutely perfect with 406. Uh, given our slightly broader interpretation of the dusty old bastard these days, let's be honest, there are only so many England interwar cricketers that are by definition DOBs, and mm-hmm. we've done most of them. There might be some left, but so we have had to sort of in, in recent times be a bit flexible about what we define as a dusty old bastard, but this just ticked too many boxes, not yep. least the fact that throughout the course of story time, we've always enjoyed a player whose name on the scorecard is a nickname. Oh, yeah. Like That's a monkey Hornsby monkey style. Monkey Hornsby, great example. Yeah. For example. Dodger Weisel died on the dance floor. Incredible. <laughs> Cap 406 for England in test cricket was a chap by the name of Butch White. What a tough name that is. Full name, David William White. Uh, but he went with he went oh. by Butch. I'm, I'm not. There must be some film reference or literary reference to why Butch White. I mean, I don't know what that is. It doesn't come up in any of his obituaries or mm-hmm. anything like that. Why they called him Butch? It might have been a another footballer at the time or, or something along these lines. Maybe sure. he was just really Butch. It'll well, he was. As yeah. it happens, he was big and Butch and yep. broad-shouldered and a fast bowler. And Simon Butcher is the one who sent this in. So maybe ah. you know. I mean, he would obviously have been called Butch his entire life. Funny, isn't it? I didn't even consider the name Simon Butcher. This has to be right. Yeah, this is good. Yeah, this is good. So Butch White, full name David. William White. I mean, it'd be funny if you name Simon Butcher and then someone says, why, did, why do they call you Butch? And you go, oh, I'm named after Butch White, the cricketer. <laughs> 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 Just yeah. completely befuddled people. Yeah, yeah. Butch White was a, a hero of mine, given, mm. um, given that he was a, a Birmingham lad, um, ended mm. up on national service in the 50s. He was deployed to Hampshire where he was teaching he was a driving instructor for the army in that role. Deployed to ha- it makes it sound like he was dropped out of a plane into Hampshire. Yeah. You know, you've got to reclaim Hampshire from the Germans. I'm tipping Birmingham and Hampshire were quite different places to each other mm. in, in 1957, where he made his first class debut for Hampshire against the students of Cambridge. Yeah, and as well, I said, they didn't I, know what hit him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I was drawn to this as this story does have 
echoes to, to other things that we've spoken about um, over the last couple of years. I'll start by saying that he formed a formidable combination with Derek Shackleton, the other Hampshire seamer of the time, and won them their first county championship mm-hmm. in 1961. They only won it one more time in 1973, which was only a couple of years after our man yep. Butch had finished up as a professional at the club. Derek Shackleton, great team man, always happy to slaughter a couple of thousand penguins to get the team through a cold winter, you know. <laughs> On the, the frozen peninsula. Extraordinary, uh, extraordinary uh, team player. So they, they had a massive win in 1961 against Sussex where it was a huge game. It was going to dictate whether they'd win the championship or not. They're up against it and Butch wasn't bowling well, but he got thrown the ball for another over, took a hat trick, had the fourth catch or the fourth ball in the sequence dropped behind the wicket as well. Oh. Should have had four wickets in a row. And to this day, Hampshire fans speak of that spell as being decisive in their first pennant uh, back in 1961, the year of my parents' mm. birth. And that was enough to get him on the tour of India and Pakistan in 1961-62. I think he took 100 wickets in the season. So that was his, his sort of breakout year. It would have been by that stage, I suppose, 25, I think. Now, I like this because, of course, England are in Pakistan at the moment. So I say there's a few things we've been discussing of late. But there was some difficulty in him getting into the side, namely Truman and Statham, who were opening the bowling for England in that era and were you know, two of the all-time, all-time greats. But he was on the tour. And they played in India first. There was some natural attrition through the Indian part of the series. And by the time they arrived in Pakistan and by the time they reached the second test match, there he was. He was in. And he'd overcome the suggestions as well of having a dodgy action. Twice in 1960, he was called for chucking. So there were some Ooh. headwinds there. Although the umpire did take it back later, like Mr. Sheffield and Fran in the plane when right. he said he loved her, then took it back. Yep. Um, there's yep. a bit of love yeah, extenuating circumstances. Yeah, the, the plane was going down at the yep. time. Well, in this case, it wasn't Mr. Sheffield. It was um, it was umpire. Don't have his name written down. Whoever the umpire was said that probably um, Daryl Hare, pro- probably Ross Emerson. Yeah, as a youngster, no, Daryl Hare would never take it back. No, 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 no so, takesy backsies. <laughs> no, especially at the till. Um, <laughs> Now, where are we? Uh, yeah, so he, he looked every bit the fast bowler um, as well. Uh, he, he was big, broad-shouldered, had a 25-metre run-up. He was the quickest bowler in the country when he was picked in, in 1961. And he gets the chance to bowl the first over of the test match at Lahore, where we were earlier this year. And this reminded me of the stories we've told about Mike Selvey and Jonathan Agnew's test debuts. I think in Selvey's case, he gets three wickets in his first three overs and Agnew is something similar. I know Agnew gets Viv Richards in his first spell in test cricket. Well, so it was for Butch. In his second over, he clean bowls Hanif Muhammad. And in his second over, it might be his third over, sorry, inside 16 deliveries. He also cleans up Imtiaz Ahmed, who's the captain. So he's got two for sod all. Inside his first two and a half overs in Test cricket, he ends up completing a spell of three for 65 from 22, a perfectly acceptable start to his Test career under the captaincy of Ted Dexter. After a century from Kenny Barrington and 99 by Mike Smith, who you mentioned earlier, both run out, by the way, run out for 99 and Barrington run out for 140-odd. That's very unusual to see sort of two run outs in the attritional conditions that are often supplied in, in Pakistan. They had a modest first innings deficit. Then in the second innings, they bowled him out for 200. Butch didn't take a wicket, but he did his job. He was tidy off the top. 209 to win, and they do it. And it's their first win in Pakistan. We've heard an awful lot about their second win in the Dhaka uh-huh. Karachi, a fair bit about their third and fourth over the last two weeks. Yep. But Butch was instrumental in knocking over Hanif Muhammad and the captain, Imtiaz, at the start of the test in setting in train the first ever victory in test cricket for England in Pakistan in 
the the uh, well the winter of 1961-62 as far as England is concerned. In the next Test match, he opens up again, and once more he knocks over Imtiaz. Indeed, he bowls him with his first ball of the Test match. Sadly, though, after 2.4 overs, he broke down, never to play Test cricket again. Didn't take any further part in that Test match. That was the last match of the tour. Across the India-Pakistan stretch, though, in first-class cricket, he led England's wicket-takers. He took 32 at 19.8. So, you know, he's laid a really good marker as to where he should be as an international cricketer, but it never happens again. He's super consistent for Hampshire, has a number of 100-wicket seasons, loads in the 80s and 90s as well. Mm. He got a tour in 64-65 to the Caribbean, but only one tour game across that winter. He finished his domestic career with Glamorgan in 1972, a career that saw him claim 1,143 wickets at 23.5. He also hit 28 runs in an over once, dot six 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 four, which I thought was of interest. Um, he stayed in the game as a coach and kept playing himself until he was 50, unlike Jeff when you were talking about guys that kept playing. So did uh, our man Butch White. He loved golf and died on the golf course, actually. Tragically, when killed by the Bolivian military in a final <laughs> shootout yeah. with his good mate, the Sundance Kid. Yeah, no, it wasn't quite that. He, he, he died of a heart attack at age 72 in, in 2008. Still no idea why he's called Butch, but what I do know is his all-too-brief England career, he wore cap 406 Butch White. Lovely work on Butch White, and uh, it's got to be it for Simon Butcher. Surely, Butch versus Butch. Uh, right, Richard L., Next up, $2.71. He says, uh, while my prior amounts have all dealt with cricket in the US as played by the CPL, that is true. I remember those pledges and they have been difficult to solve and we have got them eventually. He says, this has absolutely nothing to do with that. It's about someone who played his entire first-class career before I was born, was not born in either the country he represented in test cricket nor in the country he died in. And finally, consider the fourth verse... (laughs) of the weight. He's done well here in terms of the weight, Richard L. I reckon we were considering his last number. Might have taken us about two months to get there. Yep. That's like only a few months ago. So yep. maybe it took us so long to get his last answer right yep. through revisit specials and all the rest of it that he's back at the front of the queue. So the weight right. has not been that long. Yeah. Well, this is the weight as in the W-E-I-G-H-T. I know. I'm the... little play on words. No, I know. I'm, little just, play I'm just telling people who, <laughs> who can't read the show notes okay. because this is an audio medium <clears throat> True. that we're talking about the song by the band, you know, take a load off Annie. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah, take yeah, a yeah. load for free. Um, and the fourth verse, you know, after all of the Carmen and the devil whatnot and the pulled into Nazareth feeling about a half past dead and so on. The fourth verse, which um, I don't think anybody remembers very well because by the time you get to the fourth verse, who's listening? Mm. It's about Crazy Chester and his dog Jack and there's some, you know, canine adoption stuff in there. It's about responsible pet ownership. It's, it's you know, it's important themes in the fourth verse of The Weight. So I was trying to figure out what the hell this means, Crazy Chester and the dog Jack. I was thinking Jack Russell, that's a dog, that's Jack, but both Jack Russells were born in England and the one that is dead died in England. So could can't be them because they were not born in different countries to the countries they, they played for. I thought about David Warner with the barking dog stuff, you remember, with surrounding <laughs> Faf de Plessis and being the notional attack dog for the Australian well, like, team. He called him in the press conference that Warner's like a dog, like yeah. a, a pack, of dogs. pack of dogs. So Warner responded by running up to him and barking at him. Yes, yes. <laughs> I miss Davy Mark version one. <laughs> that was about version seven. We've been oh no, that twenty fourteen. It's still yeah. version. It's very much Davy version one. I we've reckon. still we've been through a lot of versions since. Yeah, yeah. Kylie <laughs> Minogue style. 
<laughs> so uh, 27.1, David Warner. Well, he's averaged 23 this year in test cricket, but that's yeah. not quite 27.1. He'd probably be happier with 27.1. There's nothing there that works. Crazy Chester would probably be a bit rude as a moniker for Chester Watson, who was the Jamaican <laughs> fast bowler who played seven test matches from 1960 to 62. You got away with more wind nicknames back in the day, though. Yeah. I mean, he might have been known as Crazy. Crazy Chester. I, I mean, Jason Crazier got called crazy. He did. Does he did. that make me crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, you know, that's his song in the same way that Funky Cole Medina is Colin Miller's song. Um, every time he comes into a place that DJ hits that tune, I mean, it's a good song. If you're going to have a song, it might as well be that one. Uh, do you think Niles Barkley plays it at the start of the set and the end of the set? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he plays it. He plays it as first drop, <laughs> number 11, then in the encore. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes in the middle order. So, I, I mean, Crazy Chester could be could be Chester Watson because the English did get scared of him um, and complain about intimidatory bowling. In 1960, when he played Test cricket, January 1960, England rock up in the West Indies um, and Chester has partnered up with Wes Hall and they're both bowling fast and short and he whacks Ken Barrington at one point and the English aren't happy about it and they, they say it's intimidatory bowling and Garfield Sobers basically just says they're not good enough at playing fast bowling, it's not intimidatory. So Chester Watson's one of these um, great players with more wickets than runs, 19 wickets, 12 runs in those seven test matches and, and he did get good players out. He got Barrington out. He got Ted Dexter, Peter May, Colin Cowdery in that series, 16 wickets in the five tests, but at 37 runs apiece. So he was seen as a bit too expensive and it didn't really help him in the series. They still, because it's the 1960s, five test matches, one nil. God, what a shit decade. It was a tough time for test cricket oh. for the most part. Yeah, so even though he's leaking runs and taking wickets, it's still not enough to actually get any results in any of the test matches bar the one that, that England win. He plays in the great 60-61 series in Australia. He plays in the New Year's Eve-ish match at the yep. MCG where Australia win relatively comfortably. He's ineffective. He only gets Wally Grout, um, which you know isn't the most prized wicket in the Australian team at that point, the wicketkeeper who bats at about 9 or 10. And he plays one more time when India come over to the Caribbean, gets uh, final word favourite Polly Umragar out. And probably on those figures wasn't going to play a whole lot more for West Indies. I don't know. But either way, he goes off to England. He's studying over there, getting his qualifications, and he plays in the Lancashire Leagues. Uh, no problem with economy in the Lancashire Leagues. 117 wickets in the season that he plays there at 7.58 runs apiece. A little bit easier for Chester Watson once he got over there. So Chester Watson is not the answer to your question, Richard. I was going to say, where's the 271? He's still alive. Right. He hasn't died anywhere let alone okay. away from the country he was born in. He was born in Jamaica. I guess you could say born in Jamaica, played for the West Indies. That's not being born in the country you played for because the country you play for doesn't exist. It's a loose conglomerate of island nations. But I don't have the answer for Richard, but I did find this good story and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to tell you about Chester Watson because uh, I want to do it and because he's the only test cricketer in history ever named Chester. So, Richard, I haven't found your answer. Send me a message. Help me out. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Richard. I'm glad we've uh, had a good run of it the first time around. Uh, I've got one more number for me, then one more for you, Jeff, then we'll, we'll put a pin in the episode today. Uh, my last number is from Lee Couchman. Now, this is 418. Oh, and, and there was a bit of uh, correspondence from Lee as well. Okay. Well, I'll start with the clue. The clue is suited 
to carry the drinks. And then there was the correspondence. Yeah, so Lee wrote in, just coincidentally, I found yep. this message this week um, saying, uh, saying this, as an Australian living in New Hampshire, USA, I don't get to talk cricket much. Imagine my surprise when walking through a local high school for work and I see Nassim Shah bowling to Zach Crawley in the Pakistan-England test on a huge <laughs> fuck-off screen in the library. <laughs> I wander in and strike up a conversation with the librarian who, as it turns out, is also a final word listener. Ah, oh, what? <laughs> as I would expect Father Ted to say, you could have blown me down with a feather. Outstanding. Well, we were just talking about Old Hampshire a moment ago. Mm-hmm. Now the link back to New Hampshire. Superb. Okay. And we leave. do have a story time episode named after New Hampshire. We do. Uh, we do. That's right. The um, greatest off spinner in New Hampshire, I believe. Uh, so 418, I initially thought, well, you know, talking about carrying the drinks, I thought I was big on the 12th man thing. Mm-hmm. I thought it could be the guy that carried the drinks throughout the 1970-71 series, Don Wilson, who was the uh, the 418 for England. Mm. But he but he was you know he wasn't known for being the 12th man. It's just wrote most of uh, Cold Chisel songs. Yeah, that's right. wrote the Red Fern speech. <laughs> Keating, yeah, <laughs> very versatile. <laughs> Bow River, fuck me. Um, uh, so I thought, well, um, in terms of well-known 12th men, as it were, yep. Andy Bickle carried the drinks oh, yeah. more than any other for Australia. 19 times in seven years with 19 test caps yep. sort of spliced in there as well. But the thing with Bickle was that he didn't have to wait ages to get his first opportunity. And that was in the era when you had sort of a designated 12th man, yeah. Bickle. Michael Nisa, by contrast, was in the squad for 25 consecutive test matches before he got his cap mm. when you know he would have been formally designated the 12th man a number of times. But... That means far less now than, than it used to. Sure. So Bickle still has him covered for times as 12, but Nisa certainly had his Queensland elder um, covered for how long he spent with the mm. squad without getting an opportunity, as he did 12 months ago in Adelaide. And as far as 418 with that, well, Andy Bickle did play in the test match where the Windies chased down 418. I thought that was quite cute. Oh, that's um, good. So he had a pretty good test himself, actually. Yeah. He made 34, then took three for, but no wickets in the fourth innings when they... Chase it down. Then I moved off from that. I'm like, well, what are we looking at here? Looked at batting averages. Mark War averaged forty one point eight, but no real kind of drinks reference or twelfth man. You know, no. probably enjoys a drink, but like not known. But for even it. they're not a famous boozer. Not known. Nor, nor was Barry Shepherd. He played a number of Test mm. matches in. That wasn't known for being a boozer. Another one with a forty one point eight average. Charlie McCartney, another forty one point eighter. He was anti booze. He was a he abstained. Ardent teetotaler, non gambler, mm. Freemason, all the rest of it, as they often were. Uh, in that era. But what about this? Looking at the clue a second time, you know, suited to carry the drinks. Well, what about drinks? Cap 418 for Australia, Michael Beer. Hey. Here we go. You did help me with this, Jeff. Born in June 1984, which makes sense given that we played against each other quite a bit when we were younger. I reckon we played Mulvan both years of Hatch, pushing brain all the way back here. I just feel like we played Mulvan both years when I was playing for Mount Waverley. And I think Michael Beer was in the side on both occasions bowling I think he was a left arm medium pacer then if pressed it's funny that you can remember what happened yeah. in my case 25 years ago in a game that I remember no other details of but I do remember Michael Beer because that's a striking name to have on the team sheet he kind of ended up as a left arm medium pacer by the end as well I in, guess the, in the big bash yeah that's right and then we played against each other I reckon in the threes in Dever Hills up against Melbourne later mm-hmm. when I, I reckon it was Kumar Sangakara opening for you guys you know? yeah yeah I know right <laughs> we had, yeah we had, we had uh, yeah, Chris Gale at three Dubber <laughs> Milan at four 
um, uh, and yes, yeah, so that maybe we'll talk about that another time, not today. But yeah, we, we played a threes game against each other where I think his dad was the captain and he was the opening bowler and I was the opening bowler on the other team. Anyway, Mulvin and Devon Hills, great rivalry and played a lot against them over the journey and they were very much a big Mulvin family, the beer family. Then he went down the road and joined St Kilda and this is where I guess the story goes in fast forward in ways that I didn't quite realise before. So he didn't stay in Victoria having done well at St Kilda because there was no room in Victoria. Bryce McGain, Cameron White, John Holland on the way back through. So he went west. But the way I remembered it was he was in the west for a while. He Mm. wasn't. He went there in 2010-11, played four Shield games, played a tour game against England. Xavier Doherty made his debut for Australia at Brisbane, got taken apart by KP at Adelaide. That's when the Shane Warne column gets written. You know, no surprise that Shane Warne was a proud St Kilda Cricket Club person as well. That's where Michael Beer was from, saying this guy should be in. He was in straight away for the Perth Test match. He was in the squad. They went with frontline seamers in that match, along with Steve Smith, back into the team mm-hmm. as the spinner if required. Um, Steve he, Smith? Yeah, I know, right? As a spinner? I know. What I kind know. of spin did he have? We live and breathe. Bold wrist spin. Did he? I know. Right arm. I know. He bowled leg spin. I don't think he bowled much in that test match. They did win in three and a half days. Then they went all out seam again at the G. SCG though, Michael Beer gets his test cap and probably most well known for, he got, went for a lot of runs. They all went for a lot of runs. Went for 112 of them. Got a wicket eventually, but what would have been his first wicket was Alistair Cook on 120, batting with Ian Bell, skied in the air to mid-on. I remember I was right behind it. Catch was taken comfortably and it was one of the first retrospective no balls where the third umpire had a look at it as well, it's a cardinal off. sin for a spinner. You have to say that if you're on commentary. That's <laughs> you the do. law. You get taken out and put behind the green screen if you don't say that. <laughs> well, that would have been his first wicket in test. It wasn't. It ended up being Paul Collingwood. But, yeah, it, not the last bowler to suffer that fate. Ben Stokes' first wicket chalked off. Muhammad yep. Musa Khan, Nassim Shah. There'll be others, but mm. he's part of that club. Well, have a probably party. St Kilda beating Collingwood would be more satisfying. Yes, very good. 1966 energy there from you, Jeff. Uh, he's also the last wicket to fall in that game at Sydney, which I forgot. Smith down the other end on 50-odd. So all the photographs of England, you know, winning 3-1 in Australia. It's poor old Michael Beer on debut, mm. um, as he was with Usman Khawaja that week, of course. Um, then he's into the wilderness. You know, he's on the tour in Sri Lanka. Nathan Lyon leapfrogs him into the side. Um, I don't remember who the second spinner was, if they even used a second spinner, but it certainly wasn't Michael Beer. Then Lyon does his thing. But when they went to the Windies... I don't think they had a second. I think they were just playing quicks because Copeland Copeland played. Copeland played as a spinner. Copeland played as the seamer who was holding up an end with a combination of Siddle, uh, Ryan Harris, possibly Ben Hilfenhaus. So they had... Oh, James Pattinson, I reckon, played a test match in there too. Mm -hmm. I know he didn't. Pato debuted. Not long after. Paddo was with the squad. against New Zealand. Yeah, he was with the squad, I think, Paddo, and didn't make his debut until Brisbane. But you know what I'm saying. They were, they were, they were, they were playing it that way. Michael Clark was bowling spin as well. Shane Watson took yep. a Pfeiffer um, in that series as well, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, so this was sort of peak Michael Clark funky captaincy era because when he goes to the Caribbean in 2012 to bowl with Nathan Lyon, not only does he partner with him, not only does he open the bowling, Michael Beer, in both innings of his second test match, his second and final test match at Port of Spain, bowls the first over ahead of Ben Hilfenhaus. Hmm. So, that you know, they go with the second spinner, only for one test match. But, yeah, it works as well. He picks up Adrian Barath, league before wicket early on, takes two for 56 from 25.4 overs, lovely figures. Um, did everything right. You would expect to get further opportunities. But for the third test match at Dominica, they pulled him out of the side. Michael Clark and David Warner <laughs> were the other spinners used. And you might remember, Jeff, that Clark went on to take five for 83. 
and bowling a lot of overs with Lyon. He took four wickets in the first innings. They win the test. They win the series 2-0. And that is really it for the Michael Beer story. He only takes 12 further first-class wickets for WA. A couple of years after that, he moves to Victoria again as a white ball bowler, takes a hat-trick in the 50-over stuff, goes to the Stars until... 2017-18 when his professional career comes to an end and these days his Twitter profile reads simply once played alongside Scott Boland <laughs> he was, he's back with that's, Melbourne I mean that's that's worth bragging about I like it he's back with Melbourne actually he got in a scuffle with Aaron Eyre this year I wasn't able to read the story properly because it was paywalled but Dan Cherney wrote a story that suggests that the two of them got in a bit mm. of a scuffle playing subbies earlier this season and um, yes forever the man who um, carried the drinks as it were cap 418 Michael Beer well scuffle with Aaron there over Heathcliff presumably that's, that's <laughs> the only thing that we can we can possibly put that down to Lovely work. That is definitely going to be Lee Couchman's number. Nice work from New Hampshire. And the last number, well, it's not really a, a solved number. This is a, a revisit that's been sold for us right. by Matt Keane. Or we partly got it. He, he says uh, the number was 143 and there was a clue about his favourite ease, which we ended up then using that to talk about coming out of Revolver in the middle of the afternoon, basically. <laughs> he said, thanks for pitting your wits against my nerd pledge of 143. As always, the level of detail in your reply was on another level. You were right that it was about John Embury. So that's that's where we went with one of the favourite E's. And I enjoyed the description of Embury and Willie's rearguard efforts against the West Indies. However, the pledge was about two favourite E's, which were Embury and Edmund. Right. I came up with the pledge at a time when all the talk was about England lacking a decent test spinner. But in Embury and Edmunds, we had a damn fine pair. Never more apparent than in 1977 versus Gloucestershire. I love a story that starts like this. First innings, they paired up to take all 10 wickets. Embers 4 for 12, Edmunds 6 for 18. <laughs> Useful. In the second innings, not only did they open the bowling, they did it again and took all 10. Huh. Embury 2 for 91, Edmonds 8 for 132. In the second innings, their combined number of overs bowled together was 143. Bloody hell. A ridiculous number for two spinners in one innings, and it will be a long time before any two English spinners repeat the feat. So A, Matt, there was no way we were ever going to figure out 143 overs that two spinners bowled together in the second innings yes. of a county match in 1977 so thank you for doing that for us and number two bloody hell 143 overs of spin end to end while they pluck out all 10 yeah i, I guess embers uh um goes all night long <laughs> all night long yeah the embers uh, do not die out but no. edmund eight for 132 i mean that's a that's a more workman-like analysis than 6 for 18 in the first innings. Yes. That's harder toil. So those are our numbers. So if you want to play No Pledge, very easy. You go to patron.com slash the final word. You sign up. You set how often you want to contribute. You set your maximums. It's all in your control. You send through your number. We get it. We put it on the list. You help us keep making the show and you get to be part of it. It's a great deal for everybody all around. A few confirmations, some of the ones we got right. Uh, Gabor Torok, Hungarian international cricketer uh, who sent through 800 Hungarian, I can't remember what the name of the currency is. Yeah, it starts with F, Florent, yeah. not Florence, but... No, I haven't got it in my head. We yep. did read it out at the time, though. Now, it turns out that wasn't actually a nerd pledge. He was just sending us some Hungarian Yeah, currency. that's right. Yeah, he, he wrote to me separately yep. and said, no, I'm sorry about that. It wasn't a nerd pledge. Yeah. But, you can... but that means that the answer that we gave was correct, and that was a bunch of really tangential shit about 
trying to somehow make 800 link to Hungary through Matoma or Lithuania. We did do it, didn't we? Yeah. We got there somewhere. I'd, I'd made it happen. Yeah. I found a way and, <laughs> and it means that my completely specious answer was right. Um, he did follow up as well to say that given you're looking for a national team to go and qualify for, he said, with some research and a willingness to travel a long way, this may be a remote possibility. Yeah. So there you go. There's well, the Gabor, backing you Gabor's need. Gabor's gone from Adelaide to, to Hungary to make it so. I know. He, his Adelaide stretch was the, a brief time when he was in school, but he managed to, to become an international cricketer at age 40 this year. Maybe I can do so in a couple of years. Uh, Brooke Quinn, a late confirmation from Storytime, 96. That must go back to about May. Um, my 350 was simply a tribute to Shane Warm. Posted on the night, we learned he'd passed away. It followed my previous nerd pledges of 311, Warn versus Sri Lanka in 1992, and 429, uh, which were Warren's figures four for 29 against South Africa in the 1999 World Cup semi-final. Uh, but I enjoyed your story from the Pakistan bank teams. I love the show. <laughs> well, 350 is Shane Warren's cap number, yes, if you're yes. wondering how that links. Another one here from Daryl Richardson. This is from a little while ago as well with Daniel and myself, 1565, which were the figures of Bozing K in 1900, I think it was, in a first-class game. And touring America at the start of the last century is a very much an amateur youngster on the way through. I listened to the show the other day and I forgot to say that you guys nailed it. Thank you, Daryl. And, and one more, this is a nice bit of correspondence from Sam Litster, who we might run across in Brisbane during the week. So this was the answer about Adam Dale. It was $3.68 and that was the 3.68 runs per over that he went for in his one-day career. And I was very confident I had the answer right. Sam said, your confidence was well-placed. My mental picture of Adam Dale is him locking down one end for the first 10 overs and taking something like two for 19. I realise those figures are etched in my subconscious because in 99-2000, I watched him take them exactly twice in one weekend against Pakistan for Queensland and three days later for Australia. Right. The Shield game that sits front and centre for 99-2000, though, was against Victoria. We saw 21 wickets fall, a thunderstorm, and Jimmy Marr taken from the field with a blood nose after being punched by Andy Bickle during a celebration. <laughs> by accident, I should say. Maybe my best ever live cricket experience was the Pakistan-India tri-series in the middle of hundreds of chanting Indian fans and half a dozen increasingly furious Pakistanis ultimately vindicated when Saklan Mushtaq hit the winning single from the final ball of the match. Other highlights include a stadium full of camera flashes as Shoaib Akhtar tore into bowl at the height of his pace in his first match back after having his action referred for investigation by, guess who? Daryl Hare. <laughs> Off to the University of WA. What a surprise, We're talking Darryl about Hare. getting those T-shirts made up, Brettig and I. I got my action checked at the University of Western <laughs> Australia and I was little dots all over the arm. <laughs> it will work. They'll sell. There's some great uh, self-awareness from Sam Litster here as well. He, he says, uh, me and my mate, who were teenagers at the time, we should say, were very pleased with our banner that said, Shoab can't bowl, can throw. In hindsight, that was pretty shameful chat. We did go back to the well for a Mercantile Mutual Cup semi with Brett Lee, can't bowl, can't sing. For that magic summer inspired by Saklane Mushtaq, my mushy ball was delivered falling sideways for comic effect and was completely unplayable in lunchtime cricket, well worth the uniforms that were torn to pieces on the cement ground. So some reminiscences from Sam that I wanted to share and that brings us to the end of story time. Yeah, it certainly does, Sam. I, I share with you that guilt. I, I was uh, one of those who stupidly online used to say things about Morley as a kid, which I did not understand and 
I accept now that was part of my social conditioning as a youngster growing up in Australia at the time and it was rammed down our throat. Merle's a chucker. And we just sort of took it as said that that was true when indeed it was not. Right, that is the end of the show. What, what was the story time? 116, was yep. it, Jeff? It was uh, an enjoyable one, as you said before. Patreon.com forward slash the final word to join in with what we're doing. The next time Jeff and I record one of these, I'll be back in the UK, but we will be doing them with more regularity through the second half of the Aussie summer because, well, I won't be working 16 hours a day on other stuff and nor will mm-hmm. Jeff. So there'll, mm-hmm. be, there'll be a window to get a lot more revisits done as well. We'll have a revisit special at some point in January. So keep the pledges coming in. Let's see if we can overtake Jimmy Anderson again. That's right. We're going to catch Jimmy. We've got to do it. Uh, we've got to go to India too in February. <laughs> so the daily show for the South Africa-Australia test matches, uh, that starts up from Saturday and uh, onward and upward we will go. Final word, it never stops. We'll see you next time. Have a nice weekend. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it.